Welcome to the Sum of It All Thinking Classrooms podcast. I'm Audrey Mendeville, along with my colleague Mark Alcorn from the San Diego County Office of Education. And we're going to explore Peter Liljal's newest book, Building Thinking Classroom in Mathematics. In this episode, we're going to explore chapter eight on how we foster student autonomy in a thinking classroom. And just to start us right off, the issue there can be that, in a, um, as Peter says on page 133, that in a thinking classroom, you as the teacher have a lot less control over what is happening in the room or presumably what's happening in the room. Uh, students are not maybe being moved in lockstep with one another from one activity to the next. Uh, you don't have them taking notes all together and then trying one problem all together. And then, okay, now we've gone over the solution to that. Let's do the next problem all together. Um, and so when, when you're not doing that in a thinking classroom, all of a sudden we have this this need to start to think about autonomy. Um, Mark, as you started to think through that chapter, that problem, that issue, what, what bubbled up for you? Well, just, I mean, it takes me back to student teaching. It's like, you know, everything being sequenced and paced and synchronized. I mean, that's my badge of honor of having a great lesson, you know, of, of everybody doing the same thing at the same time, everybody getting the right answer. And so, um, really that, that really causes me to pause and, and think about this whole thing and like, what's the most important. Um, but you know, uh, you and I have had a lot of discussions about universal design for learning and this inherent variability in our students. Um, so, I mean, it's, it's really important for us to wrestle with this idea of this control where everybody's doing the same thing at the same time versus the variability. Um, what do you think about that? Yeah, no, that, that connection to universal design for learning is actually the first thing I thought of when I read that sentence was that that exactly was what I planned for as a teacher was that everyone moved in, you know, sequence and step together. And yet that does not plan at all for variability. It plans only for this mythically average student to like fit into a very confined little space. Um, and I just, I just can't think beyond, you know, I know you and I have watched um, Todd Rose's uh, Myth of Average uh, video. And if you haven't checked that out, that's worth your, your time at, sure. least, at least to check that out. But this idea that we all fit in the same size um, car and the same size fighter jet and <laughs> the same size classroom with the same size curriculum is just bogus. It's not, mm -hmm. it's not designed for anyone. Um, and when you start to think about it that way, um, it makes me really pause and wonder if all those times that I had things really sequenced out as like, do this example all together and do this problem all together. If I had really designed it for no one, like right. no one that that's just like pause, stop, like take a deep breath in, like not even some of my kids are getting it, but like I had designed it for no one. Um, and that's, that's a tough one. Um, whereas thinking classrooms, like if we're saying that we want to get away from the studenting behavior and really have kids thinking, um, that seems like that's designed for everyone, which means we got to think about losing control or what that means with maybe not losing control, but how we deal with this as aspect of control as a teacher. Yeah, gr great point. And it, it makes me think of when I was teaching elementary school, I, I kind of came up with this phrase of a lights on nobody home. And I think a lot of times as educators, we look out and say, wow, our kids are paying such great attention to us right now. Another, another great day, you know, and rather than, you know, as Peter, as you said in the beginning here, presumably 
you know, um, and I just love how Peter's work is really causing us to think about what learning is going on, not just this, this facade of, of kids, quote unquote, paying attention. Um, the other, the other piece there was this, this whole lack of autonomy is, is actually synonymous with lack of choice. Uh, and a lack of choice reduces the need for students to think on page 134. Um, so one of the things I was thinking about is, uh, and I've been thinking about this, I think we've talked about this a couple of times, I've been thinking about this over the last couple of years is, how are we thinking about how many decisions kids make in the course of a class period? Because um, I can think about some lessons that I taught, in fact, probably many lessons I taught in mathematics that the kids weren't making any decisions. Uh, is back to that mimicking behavior. They were doing a lot of mimicking, but they weren't making any decisions. And it made me think about like, you know, a lot of our kids have been home more this year. And when kids are engaged in play and, and, and activities that are self-directed, they're making many decisions when they're in the, in, involved in those activities. They're making decisions. There's something that they run into and they change course. But isn't it interesting when they get to the school building, some of that shut down. Um, so what do you think about all that, Audrey? Yeah, no, I'm with you. You and I have had many conversations about how many choices or how many decisions we give our students. And I really think at the heart of that, that's what those standards for mathematical practice are trying to do, um, which is that half of those standards that in California we're trying to um, teach our students, it's, it's not the teacher choosing the tool and saying, use this tool. It's a student saying, what tool makes sense for me to use? Um, yeah. It's a student saying, how do I make sense of this? How do I persevere, right? It's all of those decision-making um, points and getting beyond those decisions and trying something on. So I'm with you um, that, that the shift there is from um, the teacher determining what it is and making it nice and neat so that again, we can stay in step together um, and have a non-messy version of a classroom to allowing there to be variability and for students to explore and um, to get things wrong. I think we talk a lot about um, mistakes are valuable, uh, but then we don't actually leave room for kids to make mistakes, you know, or you know, it's, I only want the one mistake I was ready to showcase today that I don't want you to make, right? Versus like mistakes, all of them are valuable and they're all opportunities to learn. Um, and how do we leave space and time for that? So um, I definitely I definitely can appreciate that there is both um, a need to reconsider this autonomy um, and to think about how many choices we're providing our students to make on a daily basis in class. Um, which brings us to that, that notion though that autonomy just doesn't happen because <laughs> you say, okay, you all get to make choices now, go for it, right? Like that never right. works. And actually in um, this chapter, Peter Lilzal mentions a, a couple of cases where teachers actually said like, don't worry, you're allowed to do this. You can go talk to other groups, you can go. And it didn't change the behavior of the students at all. Mm -hmm. um, that it's, we have to do more than that. So, um, so I, I think there's something there to like the teacher moves that have to happen. And I really appreciated the, the beginning connection that. Um, that Peter made in this, this section about autonomy saying that, you know, there's a thinking framework around like, how are you gonna do visibly 
um, random groups. Like, are you gonna use cards? Are you gonna use a flippity? Are you gonna use some other random generator? Like, what are you gonna use? Like you have choice, like choose. What makes sense for you, your personality, your classroom, your kids? Um, where are you gonna do vertical non-permanent surfaces? Are you gonna use whiteboards? Are you gonna use windows? Are you gonna use easels that move around? You know, like, what are you gonna use? Um, that there's autonomy for teachers to make decisions, right? There's a framework or a guidance of it, and then there's autonomy to make decisions. And so I think some of it starts with teachers having to take on some decision-making around this. That's well, well said. And I think that I really value how Peter has that stance within this work and in his book. It's not about sort of implementing his book with some sort of like checklist and, and that type of a thing. Um, so... Uh, you know, in our conversations, this probably happened before. Sometimes I get a little lost in, in the implementation, like, okay, what is this exactly going to look and sound like? And my brain starts to go that way. And maybe some of the other people that are listening to this, that happens to them too. And many times and throughout the book, that's about where I get to a page where Peter said, well, now this and that, you know, kind of like what you said with the autonomy. But one of the things that I have been wondering about is um, you and I have done work around the five practices for effective mathematical discussions, a Smith and Stein work. And, you know, that work is so powerful about planning a discussion and thinking about what solutions you would like to have come up in that summarized portion of the mathematics time. And, and I have to say, I had to start sort of wrestling with, okay, I've got 35 students in a fifth grade classroom. Let's get really practical right now. And, uh, you know, if there's not going to be a summarized time, because we've defronted the room, perhaps, and then, I had this vision of 35 kids trying to gather around one poster and it started to, it started to crumble. Yeah. <laughs> and so, um, but you know, I think maybe we can look at some innovative ways that we could have that summarize happen, you know? What do you think? Yeah, no, I, I think that, you know, for all that we've explored during this pandemic, um, there's a lot that we can learn um, from how we do digital looks at things. So how do you take a quick photo of something? Oh and yeah, then, that's true. And then, you know, you, you can share it somewhere. I, and I don't think that there's an all or nothing here that mm -hmm. kids can never right. be in their seats um, and looking at something together. I think that, you know, there's different activities and there's different times for that. So like when you're, I think there's an interesting space when you're talking about summarizing, that's very different than starting the class with everyone sit down and look at some stuff together, right? Yeah, um, right. Peter's made a really good case that we got to get away from that if we want to get away from studenting and we want to get to sure. thinking. But I think that once this thinking has happened, if you want to talk about how you summarize those thinking, um, that might be still a really interesting way to take some pictures or maybe rotate groups through and say, I want you to go check out these three or I don't, depends on what you have them on. You know, you could pull the posters to a certain sure. space of the room if they're on like those white books versus on... Um, on whiteboards on the wall. So I think it, you know, probably depends on the specific setup of the room and, but I imagine every teacher is gonna have to kind of make some decisions how to mold those practices together to make right. them meaningful. Well, and I think the thing that you're making me think about is just going back to the five practices in terms of that research and that, and the strategies that go along with it and how, what the purpose of that work was and that idea of, um, really thinking ahead of time as a teacher of which big ideas do I want kids to bump into in that time when kids are sharing out. And so if I can hold that truth and keep that and bring that into 
this work that Peter has given us, uh, I think that uh, we can get the best of both worlds with that. So I also wonder like if some of those conversations might happen across the room as students have more autonomy, right? Like, mm. so I know that part of effective oh, true, true. conversations is to make sure that discourse happens, right? Um, like that was the intent behind some of the research is like, mm -hmm. how do you make sure that kids are talking to kids and it's not always kid to teacher and the oh, teacher, right? right? Um, yeah, right. But as the teacher kind of steps back and kids have more autonomy, I wonder, I, I wonder if there's still as much a need to do five practices as regularly, or if there becomes a place where you say that's saved for really specific instances when I need to pull out some right. information that did not uh, yes. around the room, right? Yeah, um, yeah, and the teacher's freed up to walk around and see how that transfer of knowledge, that mobility of knowledge, as he refers to it, is is happening. I I think that's uh, that's great, Audrey. I enjoyed sort of um, talking this out because I think that. As we're doing this, other educators can do the same thing and really, um, really connect a lot of these high-powered um, research uh, and and see what we can uh, make of it. So, right. yeah, thanks. So I think, yeah, absolutely. I think it's super powerful how Peter talked about how teachers have to kind of model um, what it means um, for students to have autonomy in the class. And so it wasn't even just, um, hey, go, you know, um, I want you to ask a question of your neighbor. It was almost like, I'm not going to ask the answer the question. I want you to go ask that group, you know, what is, right. I want you to go look at that group's work. I want you like, um, I noticed you're done. So I'd like you to go look at this groups, what they've done next and see if you can find the next problem to work on. So I thought it was really interesting. The teacher moves that were suggested for how you kind of mobilize students into developing their own autonomy, um, instead of this hand raising that happens otherwise, where the teacher still is kind of the source of, of knowledge in the room. Yeah, I have to admit, as I think back to my elementary work, um, I did some of that be in partnerships where kids would think of something on their own then do the think pair share with that on a small scale. Um, but I had still orchestrated that. I had told who's gonna work with who and that, but there was not this larger mobility of knowledge that, um, it would be so exciting to go back and implement now that I know and have this information. So um, having kids move around driven by their curiosity mm -hmm. versus sort of like in a very controlled way by me as the teacher, that, that sounds really, really exciting. Um, well, Audrey, I'm wondering um, with this particular chapter, what are you thinking about equity? What, what, what came up uh, around equity as, as you were reading? Yeah, it's a great question, Mark. I'm there were a couple pieces I think that really tie nicely into some of the ongoing work that you and I keep asking questions around with equity. And one of them starts with a quote on page 139 and it's um, Peter writes, we need to help students break down the barriers around their groups by mobilizing the knowledge in the room for them. Not only does this help, um, not only does this build the independence that is needed for a thinking classroom to function well, but it also engenders the type of 21st century skills people need to work and collaborate in the real world. And I, every time I think about that, I think about who often gets prepared for the real world, right? Um, and who we expect to have kind of real world knowledge. And it's not to say that I think kids walk in the door without real world knowledge. I think all, every single one of them comes in with a sense, um, a different sense of what the world is. But when it comes to 21st century skills and this being able to work and collaborate, um, I feel like I 
almost always hear people talk about it in the context of elite, honors, gifted, advanced yeah. learners. I'm putting quotes around all of these with, because um, I'm not sure that the labels are helpful necessarily, um, but it's not, and it's not for everyone. It's not considered that it's for everyone. And I really right. believe that these are skills that everyone needs. And we have to consider how we're providing every student an opportunity to build an ability to work and collaborate um, and to make, to make decisions and to learn from their mistakes, right? Um, and to communicate with others. And I, I just think that's super powerful um, in terms of thinking about that access for all students. Oh, absolutely. Um, I, there's another line similar to that, that that jumped out at me, which is rather than being the source of knowledge in the room, teachers were working to mobilize the knowledge already in the room. I just thought that was such a statement of equity um, because I think the message that we send when we're the sole authority in the classroom is that we put students in a lesser role, you know, it's, and it's this lesser role of mimicking. Like I, I'm going to tell you the important things and you're going to mimic them. And I think the message we sometimes send is you don't have important things and you certainly don't have unique or novel things to say, you know, to say, because I'm the authority in the classroom. And I even think it could be taken a little further. I think it, at times we could potentially push the, the white normative view as the authority in the room yeah. um, versus really accepting the brilliance that our kids show up with in the classroom. That can really be shut down uh, if we're that sole authority. So the thing that I see in this chapter and really many of these chapters is this potential of breaking down that mathematical authority and really that uh, white normative view that happens in, ma in many classrooms that is attached to authority. That's super powerful to think about it that way, Mark. I appreciate that viewpoint. Um, and I appreciate the opportunity for students to learn to listen to one another. I think that's a skill that, um, that we see in our equity work is something we're trying to teach adults how to listen to one another. And it's something that if we can learn as a child, right? Um, you know, Peter talks about when you put two groups together that they have to kind of negotiate their language and their notation together. Um, they have to learn to listen to one another and build, build their ideas and opportunities. And I think that really transcends the mathematics classroom. Mm -hmm. really, so I think that's something that, um, that if we could have our learners grow and explore throughout K-12 experiences that, that we are building better citizens, better people, we're helping them to grow. Um, and to learn, and like I said, to learn to listen to one another, I think that's um, can be a huge impact on, on equity. I agree. And you know what, it almost brings me back full circle to some of the earlier strategies we were studying with the, the visibly random groups. And, you know, when we're talking about autonomy and in that randomness and having kids, no matter what label has been placed on them, them having that leadership, that authority in that group and other kids seeing that, I just think that allows kids to to move out of roles that have, they, they've put themselves into and we've put them into in terms of labels. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that that I can start to see some of how these different strategies are informing each other. So uh, yeah. such, a, such a great conversation, Audrey. Um, well, thanks everyone for joining us. Uh, in our next episode, we will chat about chapter nine, 
Yes, chapter nine. We have referred to chapter nine many times throughout this podcast because Peter has been leading us to some exciting things in chapter nine. So I, I'm very excited about talking about chapter nine. And chapter nine is about how we use hints and extensions in a thinking classroom. So interesting. Until then, send us a tweet with the hashtag SumMathChat. That's hashtag S-U-M-M-A-T-H-C-H-A-T with your questions and thoughts. We'll keep the conversation going there. Until then, we wish you great mathematical adventures. Bye for now. Mm -hmm.